What's up, fam? This is Jay from Push Black. Welcome to the new year. I know a lot of y'all are tired after a year like 2020. So today on Black History Year, I'm bringing you a conversation to reinvigorate your spirit and get us moving in the right direction. A conversation that'll bring us closer to building the future we imagine, where Black liberation is a reality, not a theory or a dream, a reality. To help us navigate this, we're talking to a brother whose collective has been sculpting the future in our present. With over 30 years of organizing and community building experience, Kamal Franklin is the executive director of the organization Community Movement Builders. This Black-run group creates sustainable and self-determining communities. They do this by centering cooperative economic progress and collective community organizing. And they do it really well. Today, he's going to break down the tangible ways his organization is making possible Black economic and political freedom. And how you, too, can mobilize and organize to make the dream of true liberation a reality. My name is Kamal Franklin. I am the executive director of an organization called Community Movement Builders. We consider ourselves sort of a place-based organization. So here in Atlanta, we have a community house in southwest Atlanta, one of the last intact Black working class and poor neighborhoods that hasn't been impacted by gentrification. We have six chapters, Dallas, Detroit, Memphis, San Diego, and New Orleans are our other chapters. I'm located here in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, I've been an organizer for over 30 years, and I used to be a practicing attorney. Have you always organized in Atlanta or elsewhere? No, originally I'm from Brooklyn. So Brooklyn is where I started organizing, where I got politicized, and I did a lot of street organizing, grassroots stuff. And it's still my favorite type of organizing to do. It's still my favorite type of thing to do is to meet people, to figure out programs and ways to, to get people involved in their community, to do political education. So I've always sort of remained true to that. And I'm one of those folks that believe that Black folks' problems are, relatively speaking, universal. And so there are some nuances across cities and counties and states. But for the most part, you can put me down anywhere and I can, I can probably organize a little bit. So. We ask everybody this, and I'm interested definitely in what you have to say. So what does Black liberation mean to you? For me, it's a historical term that talks about our fight for freedom and liberation. And what I mean by that is we as a people who were brought to these shores have been subjugated, oppressed, obviously enslaved. And to this day, we suffer from oppression, even if sometimes it's hard for some of us to recognize it to the same degree. And so for me, when we talk about the idea of liberation, what we're talking about is Black folks controlling every and any institution, organization, any economic, social organization, even that has anything to do with the daily lives of Black folks. We as a people must control institutions and organizations, not only in our community, but throughout the larger diaspora. Otherwise, we are people who are controlled by others. And if you are controlled by other people, other folks, whether they are well-meaning or not, will tell you what time of day it is. They'll tell you how you should act, what you should learn, how you should view history. And in the end, you'll notice that folks who are oppressive to you even if they smooth that out a little bit, they will continue to keep the power controls. They will continue to keep controls over economics. They'll continue to keep controls over schooling. And even if they put a few of your folks in some positions, that still doesn't mean that the dominant and subservient situation has changed. 
So for me, liberation can only be thought about in a sense of Black people controlling institutions and organizations. And then a little bit more is that those institutions and organizations themselves cannot be coercive and cannot be dominated by a few over the many. So I think when I think about our liberation, particularly our struggle here in the United States, I think this is true across the diaspora and in Africa, we have to think about anti-capitalist structures. We have to think about communal structures. We have to think about collective structures, things that disperse wealth and knowledge across our communities so that folks have the ability to control their lives and are not dependent on a few, no matter what that few look like to, again, tell those folks what they should be doing and how they should be doing it, but folks believe that they have some say over their everyday, day-to-day life. Got it. So when you are describing this to someone who may not necessarily have been thinking in these terms as far as Black folks controlling the institutions and organizations that are significant to our lives, what type of pushback do you usually get and how do you counter that? Because many of us aren't even aware that there could be a world, there needs to be a world where we do have this level of autonomy and self-determination. I think the pushback in my experience, it actually has a class analysis to it. So I think most poor folks or working class folks I talk to, they can probably, you know, teach me political education about daily lives and struggles and the systems that are oppressive to us, right? So I think that's a commonality largely across our folks. I think for some folks, particularly in that that range of like poor and working class, the issue becomes, can we believe or do we believe that we can create the alternative institutions and struggle against a society that has such a dominant power over us? And I think that's where the fault line is when it comes to folks who are sort of on the bottom rang of power or wealth in a society. I think when it comes to middle class and upper middle class and rich black folks, those folks are comfortable. And so they may not want to get uh, beat up uh, by the police. They want to be treated nice in restaurants, but they're not necessarily looking at the problem the same way anymore, at least, as poor black folks look at the problem. And so I think the pushback I get from those folks when I get a chance to talk to them is more that they have a sort of a top-down analysis and a bootstrap analysis that if they did it, why can't everybody else do it? And then I think you have to have those conversations about how a society works and, again, quite frankly, how capitalism works. Myself, I'm from the projects, and people see me as somebody, because I became a lawyer, as some sort of success story. But I say to them, you know, if you look at me and then you look at the other 30,000 people who didn't make it out, per se, as that, as that term is used, then why would you judge the system by the one that makes it and not the 30,000 that don't, right? So I think there's an idea here that you don't look at and or challenge economic systems the same way as people look at socialist systems or communist systems, where they don't look at individuals, but they look at how the system acts to, to allow folks to sort of fully express themselves. It's only here in America that we refuse to evaluate the economic system and political system that oppresses us in a way that makes us think about how change should happen. Because again, I think particularly on the middle class and upper class level, folks get too comfortable in thinking that because they are the one or two percent who get to go to some nice parties and buy some nice things, that all of a sudden things are fear for the rest of us. Let's jump to your work with community movement builders. What's your theory of change there? And what do you use as leverage to make things happen in the world? I mean, I would think our theory of change and or our mission statement as we presented is that we as a people have to come around and fight for self-determination. And that means we have to do some collective organizing 
We have to create the structures that empower us. We have to create organizations that we can join and have leadership roles in. And only through those type of mechanisms will we then be able to fight for our freedom or our liberation. So for us, organizing is one key. And then the second key thing for us is that we have to create alternative economic systems, cooperatives, micro-businesses, in particular with the stage where we're at, that allow us to have worker ownership and group ownership and control over resources in our community. So on that end, you know, as part of Community Movement Builders, we're developing several cooperatives, a kale chip cooperative, a CMOS cooperative, a aquaponics cooperative, a security cooperative, a food cooperative. And some of these are actually up and running. And in, in particular, the CMOS cooperative, we actually have CMOS in stores. So we believe that we have to create the type of economic structures that serve our people, that give some resources and some ownership, again, some control and power. And so our theory of change basically is that once we do those things, organize on our behalf and control resources, that is the path forward for liberation. So are the programs and services you provide, are they exclusive to membership or is it for the community, whoever is interested in being involved? No, it's for the larger community. I mean, our membership usually will help start and act and then bring other people along. But we're an outward-facing organization, so we have a community stabilization fund where we give resources to people to help pay their rent and mortgage and utility and phone bills. During this crisis, this uh, COVID pandemic, we've started mutual aid programs where we give free food boxes and toiletries to people in the community, and we do outreach that way. We do a cop watch in the community, and we have folks from the neighborhood, young adults, participate with us in that cop watch so that we can provide safety for the larger community and we can watch the police in our neighborhoods, a la the Panthers. So our programs are, and there's several others that we do, but our programs are outward facing. The benefits of membership is that you just have to work harder because you already understood that the work we're doing is not necessarily for us as individuals, but it's a collective action that we're taking in order to help politicize and work and again, organize with our people. So what has the community's response been to these alternatives that you all are providing? I think the community embraces the alternatives because I think folks see the sincerity in our efforts. And we should be clear, like, you know, relatively speaking, our resources compared to the state are small. And the reason we have to do this kind of work is because the state refuses to do it because the city of Atlanta is too busy propping up larger corporations is too busy doing land development for real estate developers, is too busy gentrifying black neighborhoods and pushing poor folks out and black folks out and bringing higher income residents, that that this city, which has all these resources, literally billions in resources for a city, which is controlled by black folks, is too busy catering to a, a different class, the white economic elite, to do anything for the folks on the ground. And so part of our struggle is not so much that we think on our own, our efforts will replace the state per se, but we are showing that it's going to take our efforts to either force the state to do what it needs to do and even larger to continue to develop these alternative systems. Whereas you're saying there could be a point where some of these things we don't need to stay and we're actually operating and setting up quasi, semi-quasi governmental functions that help to support the neighborhood that people have control of. For instance, I'll say, when I spoke about the safety patrol and the cop watch, part of the idea behind that is that although we support to fund the police as a saying or as a tactic, 
we think, even if you define some way, still, if we don't control the police mechanism, it still will be abusive to our people. So what we have to do is organize a buffer force that's in between our folks and the police that at some point, what we want to do is to create a leadership structure that's made up of community members who get to deploy where folks go and what they do in terms of these safety patrols. And so that's the kind of thinking that really goes into the work that we do so that you're right. We're not reliant on a state which already is failing us. Instead, we start to become more self-reliant and take care of some of our own needs. I think you began touching on this, but can you talk about your organization's liberated zones theory? We have to control, let's say, land and territory within certain areas in which we are the majority people. It doesn't mean that that in and of itself is liberation, but what it does is it provides um, an opportunity, again, for us to be in control and have some power over how land resources are used, over how schools, who controls the schools, again, how policing happens in our community, how social services are delivered. We have to do what we can to create what we consider to be autonomous zones in some people's language, and traditionally we call them liberated zones, because again, we feel like the role of the state in our community, for the most part, is to be oppressive and or is to ignore until it can't anymore because some rebellion or something breaks out. So obviously, as a people, we've learned that we can't necessarily rely on the state to do things that we're paying them taxes to do. But instead, it's up to us to sort of politicize ourselves to say, what can we do in this area? As opposed to looking at this area as a place of blight or a place where people want to move out of, it's like we're here because the alternatives of not living here are scattering us in different areas, what can we do to control this space? So we work with community associations, other groups. We talk to folks, again, on the school board. We even think about running candidates if they come from the ground up. But for us, it's all about the collective action that we take in this time and place to improve our circumstances. And that's only going to come through organizing. You mentioned something interesting about Atlanta, and I I agree that it may be easy for folks to think that Black folks have power in this city. How do people get it twisted? I think think there's a propaganda system about Black people in Atlanta and Atlanta being sort of the mecca for Black excellence or the city too busy to hate. And I think that propaganda system is something, obviously, again, the, the resources that corporations have that the city has to protect that, it really means that that becomes the dominant narrative. And one of the reasons why folks at some point in Atlanta's history where things were a little cheaper and folks saw Black folks in control, particularly during the Maynard Jackson regime, that it seemed like it could be a place for us to have a sense of liberated territory. But over the years, over the decades, what's really happened in Atlanta is that you have had a political Black elite, which is teamed up with a white economic elite, and have decided that Atlanta will be run for black middle class, white middle class, and upper class, and for large corporations to fully have their way in Atlanta. And how that's worked out for black folks on the ground is that Atlanta was one of the first places to destroy all of its public housing. During the Olympics, Atlanta actually paid poor folks to leave the city. Atlanta used to be a city that used to be approximately 58% to 60% black. Now it is barely, if 50% black. And most of those folks, again, who've been pushed out have been poor and working class black folks. The income disparities in Atlanta between rich and poor, black and white, are some of the greatest in the country. And the social mobility of Atlanta is the worst for poor people than any place else in the country. 
So Atlanta is truly a tale of two cities where you have some higher income black folks, particularly the political class, maybe some economic elites. But the majority of black folks in Atlanta struggle on a daily basis to survive. And again, the representation for over 40 or 50 years has been black, but they have not sided with the majority of black folks. They have instead sided with white economic interests and have taken up their cause, their fight to dominate the city as opposed to using some of the city's resources to make people's lives easier and better. And that's something that once you get here and you see what's happening on the ground, it's quite easy to see. So is there any hope for the Black political class to come around in some way, or are are we writing them off? The Black political class is basically corrupt. Our leading strategy Post the uh, destruction of the Black Power Movement in the late 60s, early 70s, and sort of the supremacy of the civil rights movement and the integration movement and the civic engagement movement, let's say, we have seen post the last 40 or 50 years what we can expect from Black elected officials. And for the most part, those elected officials, with fewest exceptions, have unfortunately become careerists. They become propagandists for liberal white elites, may say some good things, top, top shelf level wise. But when it comes to actual policies on the ground, they don't cater to the very voters, the very black working class folks who put them into power, which is why you see, again, in places like Atlanta and other cities, uh, the loss of a large black population under black leadership. So I don't think I have a lot of trust in the black political class because they are tied to the moneyed interest. They are tied a lot to the elite, even within the Democratic Party. And that doesn't necessarily translate into meeting the needs of black people. And it certainly doesn't translate into black liberation. Something interesting to me is this idea of just organizing in general and black folks being part of an organization. You know, uh, Kwame Torrey is biggest message that he preached as far as like every black person should be part of an organization. Could you talk about your perspective on that in a time where it seems like we're being promoted this idea of rugged individualism and do things, you know, on yourself? And I think the community may be getting farther and farther away from one another. Can you just talk about the importance of operating as part of an organization? Sure. I mean, I think anytime you talk about the idea of Black liberation. What you're talking about really is organized efforts to fight for freedom. Individuals don't win freedom, nationhood, liberation. It doesn't happen because some rich person pays for it. Quite frankly, it doesn't happen because we set up nonprofits, right? The history of folks liberating themselves from oppression or fighting against oppression is rooted in self-organizing whether or not that's peasants on the ground in places like China, whether or not we look at the African revolutions that took place in the 60s and 70s, and again, working class people, peasants, farmers, organizing themselves, a certain class consciousness that developed during that time period. Those things were organized efforts. They Obviously, sometimes there are things that happen randomly that are spontaneous, But it's only through organization that you can take advantage of those opportunities. It's only through organization that you can keep certain random events alive in people's minds so that they can struggle and fight for them. So, you know, I think the American propaganda system is obviously unique and the most successful propaganda system we've ever seen. Because for the most part, America still controls people's minds and bodies through the information that they get through private enterprise, through the idea, again, that life is about entertainment, 
Life is about pop music. It's about the movies you watch. It's about the sports you watch. And it may be about the material gains that you have and how people see you as you get those gains, right? But what it does is takes away from a collective sense of identity, particularly for Black folks, and instead pits us against each other. And I, you know, I think we're in a tremendous time now that we probably haven't seen since the, the, the 60s and 70s of mass uprisings, of different organizational apparatuses being developed. But at the same time, we're being challenged by a system which has the resources, the mechanisms, the sort of historical knowledge to separate us from each other, to quite frankly, buy off organizations and institutions, to make folks media stars as activists and organizers. So it has the ability to allow some movement activity to actually take place, but at the same time, redirect that and what's something I call movement capture so that the organizations themselves just become at best a liberal, let's say connected tissue to the Democratic Party and that's what they think the challenge is. It's around some of these policies, as opposed to the, the deep digging into our own communities to see that the, the struggle is really about masses of people, a critical mass of people being organized so that we can fight for our own freedom and liberation. So policy changes are nice and good. Definitely, we should be fighting for those. But that is not the same as talking about or thinking about Black liberation, particularly the type that Kwame Ture had in mind when he talked about forming Black organizations. So what does it take for an organization to not go in the route that would be counter to the leaps and bounds that we actually do need to make? Oh, it's hard. So, <laughs> so, I mean, there's no reason not to think it's hard. It's not only it's hard for several reasons. It's hard for, again, as we look at our recent history, but we've had our leaders assassinated. We've had our leaders jailed. We've had our leaders given bad propaganda or bad media coverage. And then we've also had people who have abused movement activities, who've gotten to these spaces and said they're for, for or all about movement. And what they did instead of fighting for movement was fight for personal aggrandizement. And then lastly, we have these foundations and so forth, which are now more willing to give money to certain organizations if they think even with the radical rhetoric, it will curtail their actual political activities. So I, th I think it's a constant reading and political education that's needed for folks to understand not only the history of struggle, but where all the pitfalls of our organizations are led to that makes them easily become propaganda arms of the state as opposed to challenging the state apparatus. So I think that becomes hard because you have a tremendous amount of resources on the other side that are fighting to stop liberation for Black people. Some folks may be okay with Black folks joining in or a certain percentage of Black folks joining in sort of an elite entry point in terms of the larger political apparatus and how it operates. But whether it's conservative or liberal, the idea that Black folks want self-determination and control over the politics, the education, the social system, for them, they see it as a direct challenge, a direct challenge to, quite frankly, white control, white supremacy. And so whether or not our friends are liberal or not, when it comes down to black self-determination, that is seen as a challenge to the very existence and the history of white America. So it's by no means hard, but we obviously have institutions and organizations which have fought through that, which people have joined in mass. When you think of the UNIA, 
when you think about the Black Panther Party and the uprisings of the 60s and 70s, when you think about SNCC, we've had organizations that have broken through and have been celebrated and which Black people have attached themselves to. But we have to know that these organizations will get attacked by the state. And in some ways, that's how you know they're doing their job, to be honest. If they're embraced by the state, most likely not a lot's going to change on the ground. But if the state and or the political apparatus and the media apparatus begins to see these folks for the most part as enemies, it's not exclusively that, but if they see a lot of these folks as enemies and they start writing derogatory things about them, then you can tell sometimes that then there's a fear from the state around people believing that they can do better outside of the apparatuses created by America, which again, don't offer us liberation, but coax us into this false sense of like, at some point in the future, there will be some equity or some equality that we haven't achieved yet in over 400 years. Now, I'm interested in, in terms of your organization, I know you all have an express set of values, self-determination, sustainability, leadership, humanity, solidarity, and Black love. So talk about some of those values and how you arrived at that list overall. When our organization was started, it was started with some young people who weren't the most politicized folks in the world, but knew they wanted to do something for their community. And so we consider ourselves a mass-based organization, which means any Black person can join our organization. We work with anybody, but people who can actually join our organization have to be Black. And we wanted to create a set of principles that we thought could be easily identifiable as good things for us as a people. And so when we talk about Black love, for instance, the interesting thing is actually that the idea of putting Black love came from uh, Toronto Burke, who is now really well-known, obviously, for starting the Me Too movement. But we used to work together in in the same organization a few years ago. And so the idea is that you can't do this work without love for your people. If you are suspicious of your people, if you continually just see them as folks who can't get it together or or you're constantly just criticizing, then you're not going to last long in this work because your barometer of why you're doing it is all wrong. And that's going to show in your attitude and your sense of discipline and your treatment of people. So we thought it was really important to put in the idea of loving our folks as a movement strategy, actually, to move us forward. And then we talk about the idea of self-determination Because at the heart of any political struggle for a people, it is the right to decide what is best for you and yours, to collectively decide that, that somebody else cannot choose for you as a group what is best for you and how you should live and and what you should be spending your money on or what's the best economic system, what's the best political system, because that's colonialism. That is control over your life, both individually and collectively, by outside entities. And usually, not even usually, always, that's an uneven relationship that's meant to extract from your community and provide for somebody else. And so that's not something that you can gain liberation from. So self-determination is something that's extremely important in terms of directing a movement that's supposed to be about Black liberation. And then lastly, I'll mention the idea of sustainability, because it's something that, you know, we as Black folks don't get enough credit for in terms of thinking about creating entities and organizations and enterprises that have a relationship to the earth that, again, is not extractive and damaging to the earth, but something that provides for human well-being without destroying the planet. And so we don't want to duplicate what we see are the mistakes 
of the folks who've been oppressive or who control the vast majority of wealth in the, in the world because their idea is that they'll let future generations worry about it or it's all about their individual wealth and what gets passed down to their children and so forth and so on. We have to be better than that. We can't just say let's have control and power and not think about how that control and power is operated both for us and it's an impact on the larger world. For, so for us, doing things around cooperative economics is important because it creates sustainability, creates group ownership, and we think about it as a base as to how do we use or work with the planet in ways that don't become something that destroys it, but becomes something that has a symbiotic relationship. And so that's something that's, again, very important for us as we approach this work. How do these play out in the ways that you work with people to get active in their communities and make a difference? Can you give like an, an example of how you approach members or community members with these values paired with the programs that you all carry out? Well, at first, it means for us that we just don't decide to come in and do whatever we want to do and think that folks will automatically see that as the right approach. And so when we, again, for particularly the Atlanta chapter got started here, some young people actually lived already in the neighborhood and we found this house and we had a donor who wound up purchasing the house for us. So our first thing was to start calling community meetings and going to the community organizations and associations and working with them on calling some of these meetings that we call people's assemblies, something that, again, we borrowed from the work that we did in Jackson, which is actually borrowed from work done in both Brazil and Venezuela in terms of organizing oppositional forces to sort of elite domination of people in those countries. So these people's assemblies were basically town hall meetings where people would gather and say, what are the things that you see as a problem in this community that you've lived in a long time? And, you know, some of our earliest conversations, you know, folks, of course, talk about the lack of resources and crime. But one of the things that kept coming up for the Southwest community that we're in in Atlanta was that no matter what the other issues are, what's happening is that we're being priced out of our community. And unless we deal with the issues of gentrification, the rest of it doesn't matter because we're not going to be here in 10 or 15 or 20 years. And so hitting on something like that led us to start organizing our, one of our first efforts with, again, other community-based organizations was organizing around the issue of gentrification in Southwest Atlanta. So that's a program that came directly out of communication with people in the neighborhood. And then secondly, I'll say is when we started our police brutality work, it was because less than a mile away from us, Brother Rashad Brooks became well-known during this recent uprising period as somebody who was killed by the police, shot in the back at a Wendy's in Atlanta, and then subsequently the Wendy's was burnt down. People in the community, not, not professional organizers or activists or longtime organizers and so forth, people in the community actually went to the Wendy's and attempted to take it over and say that they wanted the Wendy's turned into a peace center. But they wanted Brayshard Brooks to be remembered, one, and fight against police brutality, two, but they also wanted to have programs on that sacred ground now that dealt with issues within the community and what they could provide in terms of bringing services. And so we were sort of joining come late leads to that, but other folks called us in and we joined with them, right? We joined with their declaration of building something more autonomous or self-determining and a liberated territory to say, what can we do to help support the work that you have already started leading? So for us, it means being humble. It means working with folks. It means figuring out what people's needs are, again, 
but we carefully come back to the idea that the community itself has to be at the center of change. Otherwise, it's not going to be real change. It doesn't mean we don't have discussions, debates, and back and forth with people in the community, but it definitely means that we respect them enough to have that dialogue and discussion as opposed to just going out on our own and deciding everything that should happen is based on our reasons for doing it and not based on sort of a collective decision-making process that involves long-term residents of this community. Wanted to circle back on something you mentioned before. We've been doing a lot of talk about collective work naturally based on the topic of conversation, but you've also mentioned collective identity. Can you describe what you mean by that and why that is important to us as a people? I think, you know, we, I'll speak directly to the issue of Black folks in America to start with. Um, And I should be clear, you know, my politics are uh, that of a Pan-Africanist and that of of someone who believes in self-determination for Black folks. So when I speak about a common identity, when we speak about that, we know that there's been a struggle both here in America and in other places around the oppression of Black folks, the stealing of Africans from Africa and bringing them here to this country to work as slave labor. And so there's a common history and a bond of fighting that oppression, which out of that has grown a sort of new culture that has aspects of our time in Africa, but also aspects of sort of resistance culture and even some things that maybe we're not even so proud of, just like survival culture, right? But those things have kept us alive for a very long time in a situation that is overtly oppressive and at some points genocidal in terms of our history here in this country. And so for us to not realize that that group identity has been the thing that has been the stalwart in terms of keeping us going and moving and striving and trying to figure out which way forward and how to survive when our folks are being lynched and when our folks are being raped and when our folks are being jailed and imprisoned, it does us a disservice to quite frankly throw all of that out under the hopes that the very system and or people that has oppressed us will one day all of a sudden sort of wise up and say, oh, that was all a mistake. Oh, that was so long ago that uh, you have nothing to worry about anymore, right? Even though, again, if you look at any major social index or study around our conditions in America, they are quite frankly the same as they were 40, 50, 60 years ago. And now when you look at the sort of onslaught of white resistance to the demographic changes that are happening in the country, it's obvious to see that our people can very easily be under direct attack as we have been in the past. And so having a group identity helps us fight back against oppression. It helps us look at our past and our present to see what our future could look like if we could get over the hump of allowing ourselves to sort of be separated into different camps, as opposed to thinking about what is it that we need that other people have used for their freedom. And I think the idea of identifying as a people, knowing that we have differences, knowing that you know we can have unity without uniformity, something Baraka was famous for saying, Amiri Baraka, is extremely important. But understanding at, at the base level, there are some commonalities that if we want liberation, we have to fight on the basis of those commonalities, understand our differences, accept them, be appreciative of them, love each other in spite of them, but still keep things going forward towards the idea of what it could look like if we were able to control the institutions, the organizations, the schooling, and so forth of our everyday lives. 
Thank you, Kamal. This has been a great, great conversation, man. I appreciate you um, sharing some of your time with us today. I know the people are going to get a whole lot from this one, so thank you. And how can folks find your organization everywhere it exists? I appreciate uh, you having me on. Uh, I'm really thankful for the opportunity just to talk a little bit about our work. But folks can find us at communitymovementbuilders.org. We're on social media under that same name, both Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And on our platform, our website is info at communitymovementbuilders.org, where they could also reach us. Excellent. All right, Kamal Franklin, thank you, my brother. Thank you, sir. I really appreciate you, bro. All right, all right. So just like that, we're at the end of this episode of Black History Year. This podcast is produced by Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit black media company. You know, at Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, a people without knowledge of their past history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. I'm guessing you probably feel like that's important too. I mean, you're here at the end of a podcast about black history. You matter. Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value the work. Push Black exists because we saw we had to take matters into our own hands. You make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most people do about five or ten bucks a month, but everything makes a difference. Thanks for supporting the work. The Black History Year production team includes Tariq Alani, Patrick Sanders, William Anderson, Jerea Bradley, Brooke Brown, Shonda Buchanan, Escadar Getahoon, Leslie Taylor Grover, Abney Jones, Aquia Tay, Darren Wallace, and our producer, Sydney Smith. For Limina House, our producers are Jessica Rue France and Sasha Kai Parker, who also edits the podcast. Black History Year's executive producers are Julian Walker for Push Black and Michael L. Sesser for Lemina House. I'm Jay for Push Black. Thanks for checking us out. Peace.